That's who Jesus is. A miracle worker, a way maker, a light. When it's so dark you can't see anything, there he is. He's a light. He's a promise keeper. The Bible says his promises are yes and amen to them that believe. Amen. And so we as a people need to look to the God who's faithful, the God who keeps his word, the God who honors his commitments and his promises to us. I want to grab this, Ryan? Sherry, Ryan, somebody? There it is. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yes, indeed. There's been many times in my own life when I looked at my landscape of life and I thought, oh my goodness, God, where are you? How many ever felt like that? You said, God, where are you? And you look around and you can't seem to see his, his handprint anyplace. You know, and then you get through it and you, you think to yourself, well, I, I'll just put my shoulders to the grindstone and I'll put my head down and I'll make it through. And, but then when you come out the other side, you look back and you realize it wasn't your shoulders to the grindstone and it wasn't anything like that at all. You look and you can see how God's hand was in every aspect of it, but you can only see it when you're looking in the rearview mirror, when you're looking at it from having already gone through it, amen? And then you realize, God, you were there all the time. And then you understand that, that he's promised in the scripture. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So sometimes I can't experience him because I'm too busy trying to make it happen on my own. I'm too busy trying to figure it out on my own. I'm too busy taking those weights on. I don't know, call it a martyr complex, call it whatever you want, but I'm too busy taking that stuff on and not realizing I just need to give it to Jesus. Amen? So if you got some burdens today that are weighing you down and, and you've been looking at the situation and saying to yourself, God, I, I can't see your handprint anywhere on this, but I'm going to trust what pastor's saying today, that you are here in the midst of this circumstance in my life. I'm going to place it in your hands and so that I can look back six months from now and I'll be able to see how you were doing it. And, and, and Lord, help me to experience it in the moment by letting it go and giving it to you. Amen. So I just want you to take whatever that thing is right now and just kind of lift it like this up to the Lord. You know, as if you were just handing it off to him. Father, right now in Jesus' name, the Bible says to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. So Father, we do that today. We cast them upon you and we trust you Lord, to undertake in every situation to the degree that, Lord, we can actually tell that you're working on it and we get better at telling, Lord, in the moment rather than having to see it when we look back. And, Father, we just trust that, God, you are going to take care of this situation and we thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. My wife's word earlier was very important. Thank you. Because she was pointing out how many times... You know, we think that self-discipline is the answer. And I'm one of those people. I come from the self-discipline camp. How many had parents like that? Raise you to be tough, self-disciplined people, right? Well, Brian, I think that battery is completely dead that you just handed me. Did you put it in right?
go play with it. Try another battery. That one's giving me nothing. Anyway, when she was talking earlier, Sherry, she was talking about how, you know, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-discipline, right? But it's a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we have to allow the Spirit to work in our life in order to manifest self-discipline. Now, you can try to conjure it up in your own strength, and I've tried many times in my life. How many have tried? Many times. I mean, I was raised in that kind of family where, you know, you have to have self-discipline. But I found that many of the especially the bad habits I had in my life, I couldn't defeat them through self-discipline. I just couldn't. I couldn't win through self-discipline that was created from within. I only won when I got closer to the Lord, to Holy Spirit, and had a manifestation of self-discipline as a fruit of the Spirit. You see the difference? One is conjured in the flesh. The other is a fruit of the Spirit. And when we let self-discipline be a fruit of the Spirit, when we've gotten closer to Christ and he's manifest in self-discipline, well, then that makes all the difference in the world. Amen? All right. Are you guys paying attention today? All right. Are you as distracted as I was with all the stuff that wasn't working and all that kind of thing? Man, that drives me crazy. Something's not working. Woo! Look out. Mm. Well, I've had a lot of people ask me about the... uh, the revival, the outpouring in Asbury, Kentucky. And uh, uh, now it's working. Come on. Uh, was the battery, wasn't it? Check, 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 check. Test on one, two. What do you mean it was wrapped in plastic? And it had plastic on it inside the case? <laughs> All right. We're right on our game today, let me tell you. We can't even see the plastic wrapped around the outside of the battery. Woo! I'll tell you. Mm. Sometimes it's the user interface that's the problem, and sometimes it's not. So anyway, anyway, people have been asking me about the revival, and, and Adam and I were going to head down last Sunday after church, and then we read where they announced that they were uh, uh, Sunday night, last Sunday night was the last public service they were going to do, and they were going to limit it to students and youth only uh, because they wanted to keep it pure to how it had begun on campus. So we decided, I guess we're not going down. And then today, or yesterday I should say, I read an article, excellent article in Christianity Today. They have uh, someone whose job it is to just basically uh, study moves of God and revival, and uh, they're a revivalist historian, and so they, they've been down there doing interviews and stuff, and so I thought I'd, I'd read this, because I thought this was pretty interesting today. It's just a short little bit about how everything broke out uh, in, in Asbury. So, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a small college in a small little town in Kentucky. Uh, uh, Asbury was one of the revivalists in the Methodist Church uh, back in the 1800s, and the college is named after him. And, uh, and they've had a history of outbreaks at this campus over the years. And uh, the little town's only got 3,800 people in it. 30,000 people showed up uh, over the course of, of a week there alone. And so as you can imagine, the entire town was strained from all of the people showing up. And so uh, they just didn't have the infrastructure to handle it was one of the things. But the other thing that they were excited about is it started breaking out in campuses all over uh, United States, uh, Samford, all kinds of other universities started to experience outpourings as well. And so they feel like that was the purpose of it, to cause a spark in the hearts of university students all over the country. But I thought this, I want to read this to you because the, the beginning of it is quite interesting. So listen to this. It says, the revival began at a chapel service 
February 8th, Zach Merkrebs, uh, the assistant soccer coach, who is the, also the leadership development coordinator for the missions organization Envision, preached about becoming love in action. So it was the assistant soccer coach who was in the podium that morning. His text was Romans chapter 12. As he started, Merkrebs told the students who are required to attend three chapels per week that he wasn't aiming to entertain them and he didn't want them to focus on him. He said, and I quote, I hope you guys forget me, but anything from the Holy Spirit and God's word would find fertile ground in your hearts and produce fruit. Romans 12, that's the star today, okay? God's word and Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving in our midst, that's what we're hoping for. Mercreeves also talked to them about the experience of God's love in contrast to radically poor love that's narcissistic, abusive, manipulative, and selfish. Then he said, some of you guys maybe have experienced that kind of love in the church, he said. Maybe it wasn't violent or maybe it wasn't a molestation, uh, but it was being taken advantage of, and it felt like someone had pulled a fast one on you. And then he finished his sermon up. No one came forward at the end of the service, though, uh, and Mercury was convinced that he had, in his words, totally whiffed. I think that means he didn't think he did a very good job. He texted his wife, <laughs> latest stinker, I'll be home soon. <laughs> Seriously. But a black gospel trio sang a final song and the chapel ended. But 18 or 19 students stayed and decided they wanted to pray. They sat in several clusters, a few along the right wall, a few in their seats, a few on the floor in the aisle, and a few at the foot of the stage, and they just kept praying. Uh, Zeke Ather, a junior, told a documentarian a few days later that he was one of the ones who remained in the chapel. He left after an hour to go to class, but then when he got out, he heard singing coming from the chapel. I said, okay, that's weird. And he went back up, and it was surreal. He said the peace that was in the room was unexplainable. He and a few friends immediately left, sprinting around the campus, bursting into classrooms with the announcement, revival's happening. And the rest, as they say, is history. Amen? So from a soccer coach who said, I preached a message and it stunk, God did great things. Amen? Everybody say, there's hope for us. That's what I took from that. There is hope for us. Amen. There's hope because God can move by his spirit sovereignly, divinely, wherever there are hungry hearts who will crave after him. And I think that's the key. Everybody likes to talk about the generation that's come after it. You know, I remember my parents thought my generation was never going to accomplish anything because we weren't, you know, the ones that had to work through the war and all that kind of stuff, right? How many remember that? Your parents telling you, you know, you're, you got to get out and you got to do this, you got to do that, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was pretty sure my kids were, you know, uh, you know, I remember saying to my kids, you got to get out and you got to get a job. I remember, I remember Ryan, who is obsessed with just go, go, go all the time now. I remember having to, you know, threaten to do everything I could to just get the kid to go out and get a job. <laughs> it's like, go work, son, right now, or I'm going to, you know, you know, take you out and, and cut off all your food and everything, you know. And, uh, you know, I had to motivate them. But, you know, we all tend to think of the generation coming af after us as, you know, not as good as our generation. But the reality is, every generation, every generation has the potential to ignite a spark in God because of a hunger in their, sp in their spirit. And that's all that God looks for. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a baby boomer or a millennial or a Gen Xer or a Gen Zer. 
It's the heart that's hungry for God that he honors. Amen? I, wanna, I got a particularly interesting message this morning. And it uh, could be a hard one, so you have to bear with me. I don't mean it to be, so I'm just going to ask the Lord for his help this morning. Father, I just ask, Lord, you'd help me today as we look to your word. Father, would you bring understanding to the hearts of the people today that nothing, nothing in this life is more important than walking with you? Nothing. There are a lot of things that you've given us that are incredible and wonderful and enjoyable and a delight to our hearts, family, friends, even experiences that we get to have. But nothing, nothing is a substitute for knowing and walking with you. So, Father, I pray today that you would just let your Holy Spirit guide my heart, my, my thoughts, the Word today, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the individuals who had the greatest impact in my life was a guy named Glenn Berteau. And Glenn was Jimmy Swaggart's youth pastor. He was a wild man. And uh, Glenn came up to our youth convention at Queen's University when I was a youth pastor, and I believe I was in Lindsay at the time. And uh, he came up to, uh, to, the univer- I mean, to Queen's University to our youth convention where a couple thousand kids would gather every May long weekend, and we'd all gather up at Queen's. And Glenn was speaking up there, and... He, he said some one-liners, best one-liners that just kind of were like someone just stuck a knife in your gut. You ever have somebody drop one of those? Uh, Bill Johnson does that to me now. He'll say stuff, and I'm like, oh, man, that was good. But Glenn said, one of the things he said when he was in Kings, he said, do you read the Bible to become more like Jesus or just so you can become a smart sinner? I was like, oh, ouch, that hurt. And then he said, well, probably the most potent thing he ever said, though, was this, when I heard him say this. He said, if the Lord were to lift the anointing of his presence from your ministry, would you notice the difference? Wow. If he were to lift the Holy Spirit off of what you're doing, would it make any difference? Or would it just be business as usual? If the Lord took away his spirit, would you be so used to doing it in your own strength that you wouldn't even notice that he was gone, that he was lifted. Well, I want to go to a story in the Old Testament that kind of talks about this today. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read uh, verse 12, uh, verse 17, and then verses 22 to 25. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Everybody say corrupt. corrupt. Sons of Eli are corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young men, right, sons of Eli, was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So there were women there that were serving people as they were coming in for worship, and they were having relations with these women rather than doing what they were supposed to do as priests of the Lord. So he said to them, so Eli confronts his two sons, verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings 
from all the people. Verse 24, now know my sons, he says, for it is not a good report that I hear you make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because, at this point, the Lord desired to kill them. Mm, that's strong. So Eli's priesthood was an extremely evil priesthood, largely because of Eli's inability to correct the behavior of his sons, maybe because they were acting out because they received the names Hophni and Phinehas, I'm not sure, but they were uh, horrible, corrupt boys. They were living in deep sin. They were treating the sacrifices in the temple with corruption. They were having sex with the women who were coming and working at the temple. They were not good people. They were making the Lord's people, was the final epitaph on their lives, they were making the Lord's people to transgress. In other words, here they are priests supposed to be interceding for the people, and instead, they're causing the people to fall into sin. Right? How many remember Jesus saying similar words in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's, I believe, as well? He, said, he says, woe unto the one who causes even the least of these little ones to stumble. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be plunged asunder, right? Are you hearing me? Than to stand before the Lord having committed that sin. So here's what his, his sons were doing. And if you were to read further along in verse 30 and 31, we'll see where Eli, uh, the Lord, I should say, speaks to Eli one night and he tells him that he's going to remove his family from the place of being priests in Israel. And he says, for the Lord, for those, he says, who honor me, I will honor. For, but those who despise me, they will be lightly esteemed. In other words, they're not going to get any kind of honor from the Lord. Then he tells them that his family is going to be cut off. They're going to be cut off. Later, God tells him that the sign of this uh, being upon him will be that his sons will die on the same day. How many know you don't want to hear that word from the Lord? God's promise was clear that because uh, Eli had allowed the tabernacle to be defiled, that the anointing would be removed. Did everybody follow that so far? All right, so what is the application of this? Well, sometimes in an effort to exercise grace, we operate like Eli. Sometimes in the church, you know, we want to be gracious, and so we don't confront sin. Now, I'm a firm believer that if somebody comes in and they're new and, you know, and maybe you know that they're some drug dealer from downtown or whatever, that you don't just run over and slap your hand on their head and say, you know, the Lord rebuke you and you need to get right with God. You need to let Holy Spirit do that, right? How many know what I'm talking about? And you extend grace because you want to see Holy Spirit work in their life. But if you've got somebody who's professing to be a servant in the house of the Lord, like many ministers have done over the last number of years, and yet we turn as a leadership a blind eye to that sin. I think that's what we're talking about here in the Scripture. Right? And, and that's, not, that's not grace when you're turning a blind eye to sin that's in the place of leadership. That's failure to come clean before the Lord. That's failure to do the work of the Lord. Does everybody follow me? Now, I'm not talking about everybody's got sin. Believe it or not, I, I occasionally lose my temper. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I occasionally 
might actually look at the guy in front of me who doesn't know how to drive, by the way, and be tempted to roll my window down and yell at him and tell him to get out of the way. I might happen. I seem to have most of my issues behind the wheel. I don't know what that is. Uh, but you know, many times in our lives, we, we all sin. But what the Bible's talking about is somebody who's habitually in sin, and we, instead of confronting it, we cover for it. We, 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 allow, we allow that thing to exist, and we don't bring it to the light. Right? The Bible's even got precedent for how to deal with this sort of thing. If your brother sins, right, go and confront him. If he doesn't repent, take a couple brothers with you in the Lord and go and confront him. If he still doesn't, then as somebody who's a brother in leadership, you're supposed to expose him to the body and, you know, that his life might be dealt with. But sometimes we want to be gracious, so we, we turn a blind eye to sin. And, and, and even though we're, grace is the message of the day, and nobody's a bigger grace preacher than me, I don't think, not that I ran into anyway, uh, but we still need to be a people who are willing to stand up for the righteousness of God. Amen? All right, so that's application of that. Now I want to go on to the next chapter, turn to chapter 3, and this is where the story gets very interesting. Chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel, this part of the story you've probably heard many times before. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, listen to this, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. I wonder why. When the priesthood's operating the way it is, I think the word of the Lord would be rare, and there would not be very many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Listen to this. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. That's a terrible thing to be spoken over your ministry. That in the years of your ministry, people didn't hear from God. That people didn't have visions. People didn't uh, feel like they connected with the Lord. I don't think that's a very good thing to be spoken of your ministry. Especially when, under the Old Covenant, the priests were supposed to be people who, along with the prophets, were the connection between the people and God, because they didn't have the Christ dwelling in them, the witness of His Spirit, like we do, and experience because of Christ's death and resurrection. They had intermediaries between them and God, which were the priesthood and the prophets. And so if there's no word, if there's nothing coming forth, then there's something wrong with the priesthood and something wrong with the prophets. Are you hearing me? But I think the most telling verse in that whole passage was it says that the uh, lamp of God had not yet went out. It's an interesting phrase. Why was that tucked in there? Now, some commentators say, well, it's because they would light the lamp for the evening, and then it just it, all it was trying to say in that passage is that morning hadn't come yet, right? So that it was, wasn't morning yet. But you know what? I think in the context of what just preceded it and what was coming up, that it's more significant than that. Now, the light lamp that they're talking about is the lamp inside the, the Holy of Holies that was lit, so it symbolized the presence of the Holy Spirit, as fire often does. Fire was there commemorating the presence of the Holy Spirit. When the ark was created, it was there when they built Solomon's temple as dedication. And so what we're seeing here is the light is, the lamp was lit to symbolize presence of Holy Spirit. And many commentators acknowledge that that lamp was to never go out. In fact, the whole tabernacle was enclosed. And even if it was broad daylight, you couldn't really minister inside without the lamps lit. 
So when it says that the lamp of God had not yet went out, I tend to think and align myself with the commentators who, who believe that what that's saying is that, is that the, the lamp of God, the, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God was not yet extinguished from Eli's ministry. That God was still even though they weren't honoring him, even though they were sinning in his presence, even though they were causing his people to sin, God had not yet fully lifted his presence off of that ministry. The lamp had not yet gone out. But it symbolizes or speaks of the fact that the time is coming when that lamp will be extinguished and it will go out. Verse uh, 7. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the boy Samuel was a young apprentice serving under Eli and his two sons, right? And he had, the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, read on a little bit further down, verse 19 of chapter 3. It says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of the Lord's words fall to the ground. In other words, everything God said to him, he held in his heart. That's what that means when they use that phrase, didn't let it fall to the ground. They didn't let it pass by without embracing it and pulling it into their heart, all right? And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through the word. All Israel recognized Samuel now, at this point of the juncture in the story, as the prophet of the Lord. Samuel, I think, and, and what God was saying is Samuel has now replaced Eli as the primary person in Israel that's their connection to God. That the priesthood was so corrupt, God raised up a prophet. And that prophet would be the people's connection to the Lord. Does everybody understand that? So the stage is now set. The lamp extinguished. And we begin to see what's going to happen when Eli and his sons try to do the work of the Lord without Holy Spirit. Without Holy Spirit. So now Let's move ahead to chapter 4. Chapter 4. So what happens in chapter 4, I won't take the time to read all the verses, but chapter 4, the Philistines are attacked by Israel. But the Philistines hold their own, and 4,000 Israelites die in battle, right? The people of Israel ask themselves, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines this day? That's a good question. But in response to the events, and in answer to the question, what do they do? What do they do? Instead of repenting, instead of calling upon Eli and his sons to repent before the Lord, I like to say instead they just played church. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, they said, let's take the ark into battle. That'll make us invincible. Right? That's their solution. We're getting our butts kicked. Hey, guys, it's the ark. We need the ark. Now, how many watched Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, right? Come on, be honest here. Don't, it's not a holiness test, all right? You can admit that you've seen the movie, all right? Come on, for crying out loud, yes. So, uh, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, right? Who, by the way, I got yelled at by. I just want it for the record, when I was in Haiti. Uh, so anyway, um, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, is, is in pursuit of the art, and they want to get it before the Nazis get it, right? And, and the reason they want it is because the legend legend is that whoever has the ark is unbeatable in battle. Now, it makes a great movie script, but this passage tells us ain't true, right? Ain't true, right? Makes a great, great script for a movie and all of that, but it ain't true. Because let me tell you what happened in the story. 
right? They go grab the ark and they think to themselves rather confidently now, we can go into battle and we can defeat them because we have the ark. We have the ark. They said, we're guaranteed to win now because we've got the ark, all right? And so they get all excited. They all hyped up. Woo-hoo! We're going to win. We got the ark. We're going into battle now. Woo-hoo! And the Philistines are going, whoa, what's all the noise about? Right? What's all the noise about? Little did the Philistines know that's the exact same question the Lord was asking. What's all the noise about? (laughs) You're working yourselves into a lather, but nobody's repented. Nobody's gotten right with me yet. Hello? So with the Spirit of the Lord actually lifted from them, bringing the ark with them into battle didn't make any difference at all. Didn't make any difference at all. They moved ahead without the anointing. And let me tell you, folks, all the hype, all the energy, all the jumping up and down, all the yelling and screaming, doesn't mean anything if the Lord's not with you. Amen? Because here's the thing. Sin, sin cannot remain in the camp. It's got to be destroyed. You've got to come before the Lord and say, God, destroy this thing in my life. Now, please understand again, I realize sin will not be completely defeated in anybody's life. Everybody say anybody. Until we're with the Lord. We're imperfect beings. Being perfected by God. Right? But, by the same token, I don't think God wants us living our lives, taking a a secret sin and holding it in our heart. And if if that's you, if you're struggling with those, go to Celebrate Recovery. They'll help you bring that thing to the front and, and bring that thing before the Lord and get free. Because there's nothing better than living free. The Bible says that if he set you free, he created you to be free. It was for freedom that you've been set free. So don't go back again to the yoke of bondage, to slavery, to sin. Live in your freedom. How do I do that? By repenting. By asking God, as Barry will say all the time, ask God for grace to thoroughly repent. What does that mean? To thoroughly, to completely repent. Repent means to turn around 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction. Ask God for the grace to be able to go 180 degrees in the other direction. Lay that thing down and ask God for that grace to be able to do that. So what does ministry look like without the Holy Spirit? Glenn Berto asked that question. If the Holy Spirit was lifted, would you notice a difference? Well, I got news for Hophni and Phineas noticed the difference. When it was lifted, this is what happened. The Philistines, they get over their initial fear and they said, say to themselves, be courageous, man, let's go out and let's, let's just go and fight them regardless of what the Israelites are so excited about. So they go into the battle and they rout Israel. 30,000 soldiers from Israel fall in battle that day. 30,000. Ark or no ark, 30,000 fall in battle. Hophni and Phinehas, according to the word of the Lord, were both killed in that battle, just as, as according to the word that he received. You know, Galatians chapter 6, 7, 8 says, don't be deceived, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. But he who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That's not an Old Testament verse. That's Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8. Eli dies. You know how he dies? He was, he was overweight. He was a big boy. 
and he was sitting on a stool when he heard the news that his sons had died in battle. The Bible says he fell backward off of his stool and he broke his neck and he died. That's what the Bible tells us. And then the Bible says that Phineas' wife, she hears the news that her husband's died in battle and it causes her to go into premature labor, Right? The stress of the whole thing causes her to go into premature labor and she gives birth to a son and as the born is, child is born and she dies in birth, childbirth, she names the child before she expires and you know what she names that child? Ichabod. Don't ever call your kid Ichabod, by the way. Because the word means the glory has departed. Ichabod. She at least recognized all of the events were evidence that God's Holy Spirit was no longer with the people of Israel. The glory had departed. The glory departed. I think sometimes there's a tendency to hear a message like this and to say, well, you know, but that's Old Testament, Pastor. That's taken out of the Old Testament. You're right, it is. And thank God for His grace. Everybody say, thank God for grace. If it wasn't for grace, we'd all be probably some kind of a Hophni and Phineas or Eli story here. Right? I don't know about you, but I probably qualified for that story several times, done stupid stuff in my life, and had things that God wanted out of my life, and stubbornly hung on to them. And, and I found that there have been waves of, of, like, you know, sanctification is like being an onion being peeled. Do you know what I'm saying? That the Bible says that when I'm saved, my spirit man is instantly perfected in Christ. In other words, you and I, it doesn't matter if we got saved 20 years ago or two minutes ago, we can't be any more saved in our spirit. Our spirit man is, is thoroughly, completely saved. But our soul man, that's our mind, our emotions, and our will, the Bible says is being saved, right? Is being sanctified, right? And the Bible has all kinds of verses about that, about the renewing of the mind through the washing of regeneration by the word, uh, through, through prayer, through supplication, through intercession. Through, we, we are our soul man, that thing, that flesh that we wrestle with every day is being saved, is being sanctified, is being worked on by God. And every one of us is a work in progress. Say, I'm a work in progress. You are. And then the Bible tells us that our body will be saved. That none of us have experienced the perfection in our body that we're going to experience for eternity. None of us. Not one. Jesus experienced it when he experienced resurrection life. And the Bible says that in the same manner that Jesus was resurrected into a resurrection body, that he is the firstborn of all creations. Colossians, what? What is it? 1.17? And that we too will experience that same regeneration in our mortal body and we will be like him. We will be made like him. We will be given a divine body that will stand for all of eternity just as, and will be just as Jesus is today in resurrection life. So uh, my spirit is saved, my soul is being saved, and my body will be saved. Does everybody follow that? And so what's this verse talking about then? If we, if we look at this, how do we apply this to us who are walking in God's grace? Well, my spirit can't be any more saved. I could have, you know, I could... You know, leave here today and do something stupid or sinful and still make it to heaven if I got in a car accident an hour later. You know, that whole thing, oh, you know, what happens if you die? In the old days, the old days in Pentecost when they, you know, move, going to movie theater was like a mortal sin. 
Well, you know, if Jesus comes back and you're in the theater, what then? You'll get left behind. Remember all those kind of sermons? You'll get left behind. You know, really? Um, I'm saved. So I'll I'll be with the Lord. However, if I habitually hang on to this sin, right? There is a thing called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, sinning against the Holy Spirit. And if I continually hang on to the sin, and I harbor this thing, and I massage this thing, and I embrace this thing, and I keep it in my life, eventually the sin becomes more important than Jesus. Right? And then what happens is eventually I become a Hophni and Phinehas. I become an Eli. I become somebody who's trying to live my life without presence of God. Now, I'm not here to say when or even if or how God lifts his hand off of somebody. I haven't got a theology that can thoroughly explain that. And I don't think God intends us to have one. That belongs with him. He is the judge. I'm not. But all I know is I don't want to hold something in my sin, in my, some sin in my heart that's going to get in the way of me and Jesus. I don't want something in my life, whether, and the biggest one that Christians tend to get caught up in isn't some huge sin like embezzlement or, you know, spousal abuse or some other thing. You know what the biggest thing is, is holding offenses. Somebody does something that hurts you and you hang on to that thing for 30 years, 40 years. The biggest thing that holds us back from revival in the church of Christ is those offenses. I read on in that article in Christianity Today about the revival in Asbury, and, and one of the <clears throat> teachers said, how you knew this was a genuine move of God. He said, wasn't by how many shofars were blown or how many prophecies were made, but was by the fact that students that I knew couldn't stand each other and were offended by one another. Got up and walked from opposite sides of the auditorium, found each other, embraced, and spent hours repenting and loving on one another in the presence of the Lord that there was healing flowing throughout the auditorium between brothers and sisters in Christ. He said that was the telling thing to him, that this was a move of God. It's only because of the grace of God that our nation is spared today. It's because of his grace that gives us first, second, third, fourth, 405th, 1,935th chances. We have them because of the grace of God. But the principle that we see in the story of Hophni and Phinehas today and Eli is still true. One last verse I want to read this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And Paul, Barry talked about Timothy, how he was, he was turned over the pastorship or the leadership of the church in Ephesus Scholars believe when he was 14 or 15 years of age. And 1 Timothy was written when he was about 15, 16. 2 Timothy written when he was probably a couple years older than that, 19, maybe even as high as 20. And Paul writes this to his young protege in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul says this, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Listen to this description. People will be lovers of themselves lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to the last statement, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. Now, you would think this is a verse uh, describing the general public that Paul's giving here. It's not. It's describing the church. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power. The world's not feigning any form of godliness. They're all in. They're not thinking about trying to put on any kind of spiritual pretense or airs. They're not pretending to love God. They're not pretending to be. You'll get the odd one who says, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian or whatever, but it doesn't seem to maybe make any difference in their daily life. But I believe this description is about people, whether Jews or Christians, who who were professing to love God. And Paul says, no, this is a description. And And he culminates it by saying they have a form, an outward appearance of godliness but they deny the power thereof. Does everybody follow me? A form, an outward appearance of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Church, let's not let that be said of us. Of all the things in your life, don't let it be said that you have a form of godliness, but you've denied his power. I don't want to deny his power. I don't care what I have a form of. I don't want to have to, I don't put on airs to have to be anything that I'm not. That's not, that's not my heart. But I do want his power in my life. I do want the manifestation of his grace in my life every day. We must make it our goal then to be people of his presence, people of his word. Because when the oil runs out, If the oil of his presence ever runs out in our life, if the fire grows cold, if the lamp goes out, we've lost and we lose our generation as well. Are you hearing me this morning? I told you this was a tough message. So, what are you saying to us today, Pastor? Am I sharing this message because I think you're all wicked people? Well, are you? (laughs) No, no, that's not why I'm sharing this message this morning. No, that's not why I'm doing it. It's because I believe we, as a people collectively, we we possess some form of godliness, but we're denying the power thereof. No, that's not even it either. It's because I believe that in the days in which we live, we have to keep our wits about us. I don't mean that we need to be sharp intellectually necessarily, but we need to keep our spiritual wits about us. We need to be people who don't get deceived by silver-tongued preachers, that we don't get deceived by those who want to tell us that the Scripture didn't really mean what it said when it said what it said, right? We need to be people who stay close to the Word, stay close to His presence. We stay close in prayer. We need to be people who are willing to put aside, the Bible says, every weight that so easily besets us and press on toward that mark of high calling in Christ Jesus. We need to be people that stay focused on Him and on what He wants to do in and through our lives. 
How do I do that? Well, we recognize in our lives that, the, that first of all, that the Spirit of God follows faith. You know, the question, when he comes, when Jesus returns, the question's asked, will he find faith? Will he find faith among his people? Will he find faith on earth? Understand also that the Holy Spirit follows integrity. God's power is his gift to us, but our integrity is the one thing we can give back to him. We can be people of integrity. What does integrity mean? Everybody know what an integer is? A whole number, right? Integrity means to be whole. It means to be the same person when I stand here as I am when I'm home. That's integrity, right? So that if you want to know what I'm really like, talk to my wife. She'll say, well, he's a pretty good guy. He spends maybe sometimes too much time working, sometimes too much time complaining. Sometimes, you know, she'll tell you all those things. And she can let you in on all the, the, the real secrets of my life. But I think overall, I get a passing grade from her. You can ask her afterwards. But I try not to be somebody else when I'm outside the building and when I am in. And that's why I tend to, when I'm frustrated with the technology and stuff, people are laughing because they can see me in the front row. <laughs> you know? It's impossible for me to stand up in the pulpit and just go, oh, well, it was such a good morning. Uh, no, I'm frustrated, and everybody knows. Integrity is being a whole person. Same person on Monday as you are on Sunday. Also, the Holy Spirit follows humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will what? Lift you up. The Holy Spirit follows love. Now remain these three. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Holy Spirit doesn't respond to hype. We found out in the story this morning. Israel got out their shofars. They got out their horns and they were blowing and everything else, but they weren't repenting. There was no ownership of the sin that was in their midst. And so when they went into battle, all the hype in the world didn't make any difference. Are you saying you're opposed to hype, pastor? That's not my point at all. I love how people sometimes read things into it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying hype without his presence, hype without repentance doesn't mean anything. I think God says, make a joyful noise in the Lord. I mean, I love when we celebrate. I have no problem with tambourines and shofars as long as you actually know how to use them, all right? You know, nothing worse than a person banging on a tambourine and they're all offbeat and everything else. I'm like, oh, please stop that. You know, if I go out and rip it out of your hand, you'll know why. It's like, you know, <laughs> I can say God's given you lots of gifts, but playing the tambourine isn't one of them. But, uh, you know, so don't be offended by that and pick up an offense. It's just, you know, pastor covering you. But anyway, <laughs> my point is, I love making a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? But the noise should come as a byproduct of being right with God. It isn't what makes me right with God, right? The Holy Spirit isn't given as a reward for the hype or for the volume. And the Holy Spirit is not the result of talent. Sometimes we get confused with that too. The uh, revival that broke out in Asbury was the assistant soccer college uh, coach who went home afterwards and texted his wife that he blew it. That he preached a stinker as far as he was concerned. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't move because you're talented. Holy Spirit moves because you're hungry. Does everybody hear me this morning? It's because of our hunger. Now, I'll be the first to admit that uh, 
I haven't always been the hungriest person in the room. In Bible college, I was as focused on having fun as I was on the Lord. Isn't that right, Pat? He can probably remember as somebody who was there when I was there. And, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, we ended up having an experience in college when students got hungry before the Lord and classes were canceled for days and the Holy Spirit moved into place. And, and there was hardly a life that wasn't impacted by that move of God. And it started with some girls praying in the girls' dorm for somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. And my wife was part of that group that's praying over there in the dorms and hungering for God. And in the morning, they moved it from the girls' dorm to the chapel and began to hunger the Lord there, and people started to join them. And, and then the next thing you know, we couldn't do classes because everybody was in the sanctuary praying and hungering for God. You can't make these things happen. They come from hunger. They come from a position of saying, Lord, I need you. Like I need breath. Like I need food. Like I need water. I need you. And when we come to that place where we acknowledge that need and we begin to live according to that hunger, then we're in a place where God can sovereignly do what God wants to do. And that's what I'm here today to implore us to do. We have moved prayer from just something we did once a month to last year we had prayer on Saturday nights. Uh, We found Saturday kind of a hard night to have prayer. People are especially on the weekends, doing stuff with family and kids and all that stuff. We get that. Nothing wrong with any of that. So we, we said rather than work against that, we've moved prayer. We have prayer every Tuesday night now. I encourage you to come out and join us in prayer. And um, why? Because we're hungry. And I believe we'll, we'll bathe this place in prayer every week. God's free to move. We're seeing God do some stuff in our youth. I was here at youth on Wednesday night. It was amazing. And watching the young people laying hands on one another and praying for one another was awesome. There's a hunger growing in our youth. And if they lead the revival, I'm all for it. But I'm just saying, God, I want to see you do something in our church. I'm hungry for it. I'm not here to make it happen. I am here to make sure I'm not Eli or Hophni and Phineas standing in the way of it happening. That's my commitment. The rest of it's up to him. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. Sorry, I'm a little over here today. If you're hungry for a move of God, I was going to open the altars up, and I still am. You can still come and pray, but I want to encourage you to come out on Tuesday nights. I want to encourage you to Monday through Saturday make spending some time with the Lord priority in your life. Do I need to spend two hours in prayer? What Barry talked about was the last week, he talked about a tithe, you know? <laughs> you know 24 hours a day, spend 2.4 with the Lord. I'm sure most of you are not going to do that. That's challenging. That's hard. But you can make your life a prayer to him. You can consecrate yourself in the morning and say, everything I do today, God, I want to be to your glory. I want to be for you. Amen? And then you can spend as much time as you can get with him and let him move and speak through your life.
But I just want to encourage you to just get a hold of God. Monday through Sunday, get a hold of God. Don't just come to on church on Sunday and hope the music will lift you up or hope the preaching will inspire you. Come inspired by the Holy Spirit and let Holy Spirit work through you. Amen? Come inspired by God. Come filled up with Him already and let Holy Spirit work through you. Put your hands out like this before the Lord this morning. Father, we, we extend our hands to you, God, in a gesture of just saying, Father, here I am. I offer myself to you, Lord, whatever you want to put into my hands, into my life for me to carry, for me to take. Father, for me to use and, and work with so that, Father, you receive glory and honor that I receive it today in Jesus' name. Just say, I receive it, Lord. And Lord, I, I, I take this as a precious thing, as something that you've entrusted to me, and I'll use it for your glory and honor. Father, I thank you for all the things that we're currently doing in our city. We've got people volunteering in just about every area of the city you can think of, and I thank you for, you know, the, from the homeless to the kids in schools to father uh, youth and, and all kinds of other areas where our father, our people are working all week long. I thank you for all of them. Whether... Uh, teachers, police officers, uh, factory workers, people who are uh, working in service industries, retail. Every week we have brushes with, we have encounters with people that need Jesus. And what you put in our hands, we ask, Lord, to help us use it for your glory. Use it for your glory. And Father, as we step out from these four walls and we say, Lord, use me. Father, I believe that God, glory is going to be poured out on your people. And as we keep coming back every week, coming to prayer on Tuesdays, coming to church on Sundays, whether coming to youth, whatever it is that we're involved in, as we get involved and we encourage one another, the Bible says, all the more as we see the day of your return approaching, that, Father, we would acquire from you by Holy Spirit more grace, more strength, more of what you're putting in our arms to be able to go out and do it again the next week. Father, because we don't want to be found trying to do your work without your presence. We want to be people who live in your presence. And Father, we thank you for that today. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.